Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, New York Times editor, Michael Slackman. In the summer of 2014, I was deeply confounded. I was a new dad with two and four-year-old daughters in an overpriced apartment on the Upper East Side. The winds had shifted rapidly and dramatically at MTV News, turning suddenly cold, uninviting. My regime was on its way out, and we knew it. And so did my peers at the Journalism Fellowship, now called the Media Transformation Challenge, as I'd pledged one thing at the program's start, to present myself with radical authenticity. Strategy, smart goals, early wins, sure. If I was soaring, I'd say so. But if I was hurting, I'd say that too. This week's guest, assisting managing editor for international coverage at the New York Times, Michael Slackman, was one half of the Times' impressive duo in the program. Slackman, in his glasses and slightly creased suit, presented as the epitome of Bronx-born cool, fast-talking, wise-cracking, and whip-smart. His colleague from the business side, President International Stephen Dunbar-Johnson, was a devastatingly well-coiffed and tailored Londoner living in Paris. For the kid from MTV News, they struck an impressive countenance. And so it was as shocking as it was moving when, on a day in which my stakeholder map was crumbling before my eyes, Michael, in full view of the classroom, called me over and gave me a great big bear hug. Michael was named Assistant Managing Editor for International in 2019 and leads international reportage across the newsroom, overseeing Times bureaus around the globe. Before tackling management, Michael was a bureau chief in Berlin, Cairo, and Moscow for The New York Times, LA Times, and Newsday. He covered the Arab Spring, the war in Iraq, and the transition of power from Yeltsin to Putin. Michael, who graduated Northeastern University, had a hand in three Pulitzer Prizes. I deeply admire this guy, and I like him a lot. As much for his journalism bona fides as for what his Instagram account says about his worldview and parenting priorities. We cover all of the above here, and then some. From growing up in the Bronx with two brothers, a heroic mother, and abusive father, to being shot at in Bahrain, putting tough questions to Gaddafi in Libya, and learning life lessons from a gold-toothed Muscovite. He shares hard lessons from the pandemic and what it really means to make a great sandwich for someone you love. Through it all, Michael is nothing if not radically authentic, which explains, perhaps, why that bear hug means so much to me, still. I grew up in the North Bronx. Two people from the Bronx, they say it's not the Bronx because <laughs> it's Riverdale. It's the exclusive section of the Bronx. Right, right. But it is the Bronx. You know, it's apartment building. It's on the Hudson River. It's a relatively pretty area. It's a little isolated. It's not on the subway. You have to take a bus to get anywhere. My elementary school and junior high school were two blocks from my apartment building. There was a lot of kids in the neighborhood that I grew up with. The vast majority of my friends, as well as my own home, 
my parents were divorced and most of my friends, their parents were divorced. We had a lot of freedom, you know, be home at five for dinner. And then if you're not yeah. home, you'd hear your mother screaming out the window. Right. I have two brothers. I was the middle. I had a younger brother and an older brother and my mother. My mother was a school teacher and she kind of struggled to make ends meet. The apartment that we lived in was a kind of a place where I think a lot of families started out and then moved on as they grew in their resources. We stayed there. My mother lived there till the day she died. I shared my room with my two brothers, older and younger. We had bunk beds and a trundle bed that pulled out. By conventional standards, it was a broken home. My father was not a well man. There was protective orders. He kidnapped my brother. Mm. Uh, he beat my mother, broke down the door. But I, ha I consider myself have very fortunate because I had such a strong mom. Mm -hmm. And she taught me the value of persistence. She taught me the value of believing in yourself. And she taught me the, probably the most important lesson. One is it's only money. Mm. The other one was never let anyone else define you. You know who you are and be yourself. And, you know, you want to wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, am I who I want to be? And that's a lesson that I've carried through my entire life. And don't let people tell you who you are. People are always trying to do that. They're always trying to fit you into a box that suits that. Not always and not everybody. Along the way, you find people who do truly see you for who you are and want to mentor you and bring you yeah. along. But for the most part, my experience professionally, personally, academically is people peg you very quickly. They don't really get to know you and they want to decide how you fit into their view of the world. And yeah. I've had people early on in my career, I had an editor pull me aside and say, I can't write. I should consider doing something else. She went into PR. <laughs> One of the phrases you often repeat is that words really matter. My thinking about words really happened much later. My home was very uh, emotionally driven. Mm. It wasn't so much about ideas as feelings. Mm -hmm. Express yourself. My mother was a real product of the late 60s, early 70s, you know, discovering herself, getting in touch with what it is to be an independent woman. You know, she believed strongly in feminism. She believed strongly in individualism. She believed that women can do anything. And that's kind of the environment that I grew up in. She also believed in expressing yourself. And my older brother's response to that was to not express himself. I actually embraced it. That was something I had to learn to actually calibrate as I got older. Yeah. Because, well, sometimes expressing yourself is misunderstood. Sometimes it's not appropriate to express yourself honestly and openly. I have kind of a wide, what one of my bosses once said is a wide vocal range. Uh. They tend to range from kind of happy-go-lucky and goofing around to pissed off. Yeah. And I really believe, Ben, that our strengths are our weaknesses too. Mm -hmm. And you have to learn how to lean in to your strengths, but also understand how they can sometimes undermine you. Passion is the thing that drives me. I learned about the value of passion, following your heart. My mother would always say, don't worry about money. Follow your heart. Do the thing that you find satisfying, where you think you will feel an internal reward, which is why I got into journalism. But that very passion can sometimes express itself in a full-throated anger. And when it is directed at individuals, it can feel really bad. You can say you're sorry, but that's like saying you're sorry after you smack someone. Yeah. Right? I mean, it still stings. 
So I've worked hard to try to rein that in. See, this is a little like therapy. Yeah, well, well, for what it's worth, you see me nodding for a reason. That has a lot of resonance with me. From the strengths left unchecked to its corollary, which is how I've been trying to live, which is maybe the things that I think are weaknesses are also strengths, that there's kind of this two sides to that coin. That's the other way to look at it. You're right. Definitely. Like that my vulnerability could be a strength, even though it makes me feel sometimes uh, unsafe. But what happens if I gain some courage and think of it differently? Well, the thing about vulnerability is it allows you to experience the world too. Because mm. if you protect yourself too much and wall yourself off, you don't risk anything. And if you're yeah. not risking anything, there's a downside, but there's also an upside. You're less likely to get hurt, but you may be missing stuff. Oh, well, yeah, that's right. You won't suffer heartbreak, but you won't ever experience the joy of true love. You describe an early distrust of authority. When, why, and towards whom did you identify that or first develop that? That is about the earliest thing I can remember. I don't know where it came from. I just didn't trust authority. I never Mm -hmm. did. You know, maybe it had to do with my relationship with my father. My father was a very troubled man. He was clinically schizophrenic at one point in his life. He was abusive. So maybe it had to do with that. I don't know. But when people had authority over me, I always questioned their motives. Sure. And if it's a school teacher or a school principal, you can kind of tell when their motive is to help you and lift you up and see you through difficult times or help you learn. And you can also tell when they're just exercising power because they have power. And I always bristled against that. I always did. I grew up feeling like powerful people can misuse power unless somebody's keeping an eye on them. Mm-hmm. Unless somebody is like trying to hold them to account. It's why in the sixth grade, I started working for the school newspaper. Mm-hmm. Half Moon at junior high school, 141. And in high school, I worked at the Eternal Flame. Yeah. I'm editor of it. And in college, I worked at the Northeastern News. I couldn't figure out any other way to have license to question authority and not get in trouble. Yeah. Right? But when you're a reporter, you're allowed. Not only are you allowed, you're expected to. I just found my calling very early on. I recognize that there are leaders and people with power and authority who are aiming to do good things and intend to do good things. And those people deserve support and recognition. And I think through journalism, we can provide that too. Your tenure at Northeastern and at the Boston Globe during that time, I'm interested in the folks who helped you become who you are, who supported you, who encouraged you, who, as Fred Rogers would say, loved you into being. Who were they? How did they do so? My mother, first and foremost. Yeah. She just always had my back. I got in a lot of trouble when I was a kid. I did a lot of stupid stuff. And she would always say to me, I don't know why you do this stuff. I know you're a good person. And somehow that message to me, it kind of got through. So whenever I did something stupid, I had a lot of guilt. <laughs> yeah. I had a fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Fishman, who I was definitely a bit of a behavior problem. It was when my home life was falling apart. My father was a mess. I had what you might now call impulse control issues in fifth grade. Mm -hmm. But she taught me how to transfer some of my emotional energy into my writing and into my analysis of the readings that we did in fifth grade. She wasn't somebody who saw me as someone who had problems that needed to get over them. She saw me as a child who had special qualities that could be channeled in the right way. Mm -hmm. I had never had a teacher like that before. If you find the right people along the way who can help you grow and lean into your strengths, 
That's great. And I did. I got lucky. I've had editors who were very supportive of me, too. I didn't know how to do this. When I got started, I worked at a small paper called The Daily Item. In yeah, Port, Port Chester, Chester. Yeah, Port Chester, New York. I was the police reporter. I would wake up every morning. It was an afternoon paper. I would drive to Port Chester, Rye, Rybrook, Harrison in Greenwich, Connecticut. I would check the police blotter. And then I would run back to the office and type up the blotter. It was literally just transcription, basically. Yeah. Occasionally, I would get sent out on a story. And I had an editor. His name was Mike Meany, who's still around. And Mike had a typewriter at his desk. And he would sit there and bang out an outline for me. Do this mm-hmm. first, this second, mm-hmm. this third, this fourth, this fifth. And it helped me a lot. Eventually, I got hired at Newsday. And again, I wasn't a superstar. I was learning the craft. And I was mm-hmm. a police reporter, a county government reporter, an investigative reporter. And there was one editor, her name was Miriam Powell, who's still a good friend. She was very accomplished. She had been the state house reporter for them and had become a big, big deal editor there. And she recognized something in me or saw something in me that she thought she could help grow. And really, she mentored me. And I was really lucky. Then... The big break came when the Albany bureau chief job opened for Newsday. Uh, that was the uh, State House job. Yeah, of course. Newsday is a Long Island newspaper, and the State House for suburban areas where all the funding comes from, it's a big deal. Education policy comes from there. They didn't want to give me the job. So they asked me to wait, and they asked four other people, and four other people turned it down because they didn't want to move to Albany. Sure. And I just saw this as a lucky break. It was a little embarrassing when they kept asking people, but I didn't, honestly, I didn't really care. I was like, I know I want to do this. I know I can do this. And I went up and then they made me, the guy who was the managing editor at the time was so uncertain about my ability. He made the existing bureau chief stick around for like another six months or a year. And I worked with them and I was really good. I worked very closely with the guy. His name was Nick Goldberg, very talented journalist. Ended up to his own very successful career. I learned a tremendous amount from him. And that's the first job I ever had where my editors were like, huh, he's doing pretty good. (laughs) Then you start to go international, right? Then Newsday called me up. I did four years in Albany, learned a tremendous amount, really enjoyed it. And I liked living in Albany. I was up in Saratoga Springs right out of college, by the way. So I, I, I played a lot of rock shows in Albany. Yeah, I liked Albany. They came to me, Newsday came to me and asked me, do I want to go to Washington, Jerusalem, or Moscow? And they, everyone assumed I'd want to go to Washington mm-hmm. because that was like the thing. I couldn't think of anything less appealing personally at the time. I wanted to be out in the street and experiencing the world. Jerusalem seemed interesting to me, but Moscow, holy yeah. cow, like you're yeah. going to let me go live in Moscow? And my wife was more adventurous than I was. So in 1998, my son, Nicholas, was born, and we moved to Moscow. And we were there for the end of Yeltsin, the beginning of Putin, and the beginning of my love affair with international news. My early jobs are hyper-local, like elections mm-hmm. in you know, Chester, Pennsylvania. How does that hyper-locality inform what ends up being a run of like major international bureaus, right? Moscow, Cairo, and Berlin. Like, What are the applicable lessons? I have two boys, one is 21 and one is 23, and I told them this their whole lives too. Every job I have had has prepared me for the next job. Mm. I don't know, look, there are some people who were born like brilliant and they come out of the womb and they're ready to write the Pulitzer Prize winning or Nobel laureate winning novel. I had to learn. You know, I think I had 
a natural curiosity, a natural distrust of authority, a real curiosity what it was like to live in someone else's skin, what it was mm-hmm. like to be a different person, a different gender, a different race. I really wanted to know what I didn't know, but I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know mm-hmm. how to turn that into stories, articles for the newspaper. So my first jobs taught me how to report a story, very basic reporting. And the first thing that you learn as a police reporter, which is, it's a big, important, high profile job, but it is also an entry level reporting job. The first thing you learn is the story only starts with the official account, Mm. the police report and the outline of what happened. But it's a people story. It's a story about what, what happened? What's the emotional context? What's the social context, you know? I remember walking through the home of a woman. She lived in a basement apartment. She had been murdered. And I just remember the overwhelming sense of kind of responsibility I felt to try to convey what was lost. You know, police reporting was in some ways what prepared me mostly for overseas reporting because you really have to go deep. And it's all about people and context. Otherwise, it's just police said, police said, police said. When I got to Albany, and then, and then I did government reporting, and I, you learn a lot. You know, I learned about, I didn't know what a certiorari was, a tax challenge, mm-hmm. you know, when I started. Like, how would I know that? You just learn so much as a reporter. It was like being a sponge and soaking it up. I learned also about, and to get back to the issue of power for a second, I found people who really wanted to be leaders because they yeah. wanted to do good. Mm-hmm. And I came across a lot of people wanted to be leaders because it made them powerful and gave them control and made them rich. And you, Very early in my career, I, I saw the distinction. And occasionally, the feds would come into Long Island and arrest someone. Frequently, you would not be surprised. So when you're a local reporter, you cover events as they happen. If it's a murder, it's a murder. And that, that's the story. In Albany, and when you're covering an administration, you have to do what Nick Goldberg taught me, which was to collect strength. You know, if you're going to follow a governor for four years, you got to kind of keep notes and develop an understanding of who they are, what they say, how everything fits together. And the other thing about the state house is you're also, because I worked for a local newspaper, you have a local delegation that you have to cover too. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of senators and state assembly people, and there was a lot of issues. I learned in that job how to be hit with a tsunami of stuff figure out what mattered, or at least what I thought mattered, and then weave it together over time to tell a more informed story. Mm -hmm. That was not an easy lesson to learn. I was a little surprised at the process in Albany. It felt very undemocratic to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there were things like the majority leader of the state Senate could do what's called star a bill. So that means if a bill went through the whole public hearing process and it was debated on the floor, it had gone through this whole process, democratic process, if the majority leader decided he wanted to kill it, he literally would put a star next to it and it couldn't get voted on. Mm. So I remember I tried to do stories about the process and no one gave a shit. Process is boring, right? But process, when you include policy and politics, if you put it all together, then it's a meaningful story, right? Because if you're writing about education policy in New York and the city is looking to re-centralize control and the majority leader stops it, then the process means something. So I learned that. And then, as I told you, I landed in Moscow. And I was fortunate because I had a little bit of Russian. I studied for a year, but I was new to the country. It was 1998. The economy had just collapsed. The ruble had been devalued. 
So it was really very similar to police reporting early on, mm. because it was talking to people to try to understand when your life savings has become worthless, what do you do? How do you live? So it was a little bit of a story on the street. I wasn't the most sophisticated reporter covering the post-Soviet world, but I learned an awful lot. And I think my work improved over time. The most important thing I learned, and I tell this to reporters now, if as a foreign correspondent, you are viewing the world and judging the world through the prism of your personal experience, you're going to make mistakes. The hardest thing, but the most important thing when you go to cover the world is to know what you don't know. It was 1998, the ruble had crashed. I wanted to get a sense of how people were living. So I went with my translator, Lena Vosvizhinskaya, out to an open-air market where they were buying vegetables. And Yelena was not just a language translator. She was a friend, but also a cultural translator. She would frequently call me, and I don't know if I should say this because I'm sure someone will hear it and use it in the contemporary context, but she called me, don't be a stupid cow. I'm not sure why, but that's what she would say. We were out at this market, and a woman, probably in her 40s, she looked much older, was buying overripe and rotten vegetables. And the reason she was doing it is they were cheaper. So I, I figured, oh, perfect person to interview, right? So we interview her, and she smiled. She had gold teeth. And I grew up in the Bronx in the 70s where gold teeth was a flashy thing. It was like a style statement. So as she walked away, I literally thought to myself, what the hell? She can't afford to feed her family, but she's got gold teeth. And Lena said, don't be a stupid cow. What that is, is a sign of poverty. In Soviet times, dentists didn't have access to advanced materials like porcelain caps. People certainly couldn't afford it. Gold is a soft metal. You can shape the gold in the shape of a tooth and jam it in there. And her mouth is probably full of infections underneath. Mm-hmm. And It was like a light bulb went off in my head. And I learned really quickly, it's very easy to make a mistake. One of the reasons I believe in international reporting is because I think most people rightly assess the world through the prism of their own experience Mm -hmm. and don't understand how things look to other people, other cultures, other countries. And I think it's important that they understand it. It doesn't mean you always have to agree. This gets to the words issue, Mm -hmm. right? Are you a martyr? Are you a suicide bomber? Mm -hmm. I'm not asking readers of the New York Times or consumers of journalism to necessarily agree with how other people perceive the world or other cultures or other countries, but I am asking them to understand it. And I think in order for any citizen, to make informed decisions about who they vote for and the direction their country is going, they need to be well informed Mm -hmm. and understanding that yes, in the United States doesn't mean the same thing as it does in Iran. And that's not a judgment. It's just a reality. Mm -hmm. The right to privacy is sacrosanct in Germany based on its history. In this country, we believe very strongly in let the sun shine, transparency. So, Understanding that gold teeth represent poverty, not flash, it's a small thing. But if we don't understand that about each other, how are we going to understand complicated things like nuclear energy? Mm-hmm. Or how are we going to understand you know, perspectives on the war in Ukraine or the desire of the Japanese 
leadership to change the constitution so it's no longer pacifist? How are we going to understand really the complicated relationship between the Israelis and the Palestinians? We don't get people's perspective, their history. And I think journalism plays an important role in that. And I've tried both as a reporter and an editor now to share what I have learned and what my correspondents have learned by covering the world with a broad audience. That story comes from the time when you were covering that transition of power from Yeltsin to Putin. What did you observe of the state and of, of Putin at that time that might help someone like me understand his actions in the last six months, for example? There's nothing that I can tell you that will help inform your understanding yeah. of what he's done in the last six months. But what I can tell you is prior to his, you know, the transition from autocracy or dictatorship or a Soviet style government to democracy is really difficult. Mm -hmm. I learned more about democracy in Iran than I did in grammar school here. When I was in Iran, I met this guy. His name was Ibrahim Yazdi. He was one of the founding fathers of the Islamic Republic. He traveled with Ayatollah Khomeini back to Iran. He really believed in Islamic democracy. And what happened, though, was he felt that Khomeini and the Khomeini regime had basically reversed the tables. Instead of becoming an Islamic democracy, they became a religious version of the Shah, mm -hmm. the Shah's regime. Repressive, intolerant, and he started an opposition political party. And this is a guy who was stormed the Israeli embassy. He was a true believer, but he believed in democracy. And I remember he was, he was an old man. He's since passed away. I interviewed him in his living room in Tehran when he was on, you know, under home arrest. He said to me, you Americans focus so much on mechanics when you talk about democracy, like elections. He mm -hmm. said, to me, democracy is values, is diversity of thought, tolerance for competing opinions, and then a willingness to compromise in everyone's interest. Diversity, tolerance, and compromise. Those are hard things to teach. I mean, I, you don't teach those by building institutions of democracy. So when a government like Russia transitions, and the transition is rough and chaotic, and people's lives are difficult, and they're having trouble eating, literally finding money for food, the streets aren't being repaired, the heat shuts down, you know, they're not thinking about democracy. They're thinking about survival. Right. That's what was happening in Yeltsin's Russia. It had started spinning out of control. The center had become so weak that the states were essentially functioning as independent countries. There was shortages of food. So literally one state would say, you can't, if we have cows, you can't send meat across the border or dairy across the border. There was one region that entered into its own foreign policy agreement with Japan. Wow. The place was kind of coming apart. And I heard over and over and over from people, not so much in Moscow, but particularly when I traveled the country, this democracy thing stinks. Right. We need a strong man to help us. Yeltsin suddenly hands it off to this guy, Putin, that was really kind of off the radar. But there was a little bit from many people that I talked to at the time of a little sigh of relief. It was like a strong hand. Yeltsin was an inspirational figure during the transition from the Soviet Union to Russia, not much of a government leader. He drank a lot, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, he was a little chaotic. And here you have this former FSB guy, KGB guy, who scared people, but also instilled confidence in them and said all the right stuff in the beginning about right. transition to power and blah, 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 blah. Now we know 
from the very beginning, he harbored desires to restore the empire of the former Soviet Union. And we know that being in power as long as it has, has given him what I would say amounts to a messianic complex where he feels he's got the right and mandate to restore imperial Russia. Doesn't matter how many people die, how many people he kills, how many cities or villages he plows under, he feels that he is Peter the Great. In Bahrain, a helicopter gunship opened fire on it wasn't you. A gunship. It was actually a helicopter that was provided to the government of Bahrain by the U.S. government. What did that moment tell you about the world, broadly speaking? And how did your response, what did your response tell you about yourself? Well, I was scared. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you hear about this, you hear about in times of real danger, things slow down. Mm. And it's true. I was in Bahrain when this was at the beginning of the Arab Spring. Bahrain is a country that's ruled by a Sunni monarchy, but it's a majority Shiite country. And the Shiites will tell you that they are repressed, that they are not given opportunities for education, advancement, to make a living the way that Sunnis are. They rose up and they peacefully marched through the streets of Bahrain and down the highways, asking for hope and opportunity. They were not at the time when I was there calling for the end of the monarchy. There was a member of the royal family that was somewhat sympathetic and tried to negotiate with them. I don't remember the exact pivot point, but they finally decided just to crack down. And the police force and military there is made up almost exclusively of foreigners. And there are people from other countries who are told if you serve here, you will get a visa and you get a nice house. And mm. Not a visa, you'll get a citizenship. And so the army came out and the police came out and they literally just started shooting at people. And um, they shot men, women, and children who were sleeping, who were protesting peacefully, who were not armed. And I spent a couple of days there witnessing this. And on the last day that I was there, a teenager had been killed. He was shot in the back. And I went with my team to the funeral. And it was a lot of people at the funeral. It was thousands of people had come out to the funeral. They buried the young man. And afterwards, they decided to march to the hospital. The hospital was like a sanctuary, a mm. safe haven. Mm -hmm. And as they were marching, they were clapping over their heads, peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. That's what they were chanting. And at one point, the road splits to the left or to the right. The right was the hospital. The left was a thing called Pearl Square. And that was a roundabout. Bahrain, like other Gulf countries, was designed in a way to inhibit communal activities. So there, weren't, there aren't public squares, there aren't sidewalks, but there was this one big circle. And it had become a gathering point. Now the army was there. So as this group of young men starts marching towards the circle, they opened fire. They just opened fire. And it was one of the dumber things I had done. I was to the side of the group, but I was with the group. I was way off to the side. I was with the videographer too. And uh, when the gunfire started, we ran. I went back later and I see that I jumped over a cement wall. I, didn't, I have no memory of the wall. I just freaking ran. And we were running through desert sand and I got pretty far away. And I turned around and did a stand up with the videographer about what was happening. The ambulances were coming. Kids got shot in the head. There were at least two kids that took large caliber bullets in the head. We're standing on the side. And all of a sudden, this helicopter flies overhead, and they open fire on us. And it was literally like in the movies where, where you like this puffs at your feet. Mm. It was unbelievable. 
they had to have seen who I was and what I was doing. Had to have. I'm guessing if they really wanted to shoot me, they would have. But Patrick and I, we ran. We hid behind. It was like a big wall around the house, and we kind of tried to hide behind the wall. And I remember, to this day, I, I remember looking up and seeing the belly of this helicopter and thinking, holy fuck, they're hunting us. They're mm-hmm. hunting us. And at that moment, a young kid, a young man, drove up in his car and threw the door open. And we dove in the car and we drove away. And he literally he says this, do you want to go to Saudi Arabia? Because <laughs> he was heading to the bridge. And I was like, no, thank you. Could you just let us out like in a shopping mall yeah. or something? So we got out of the car and I called the desk and I told them what happened. And we uploaded the video. You can search it, Michael Slackman, Bahrain, and you'll see the video. The next day or a few days later, I don't remember when it happened. The government had a press conference. I went to the press conference. And what they're arguing is the protesters were not peaceful. They were violent and vandalizing, and they were backed by Iran. Look, I was there. There was no violence. They were not armed. It was men, women, and children out asking for hope and opportunity, not Mm -hmm. the end of the regime. And they were shot and killed. I asked about me being shot at, and they denied it. They said they did not shoot at you from the helicopter. I'm like, okay, did they shoot at me from the building? No, no, no one shot at you. I'm like, well, I was there. They shot at me. They shot at Patrick. And we have it on video, by the way. You shot at us. The reason I tell this story is I don't like it when journalists try to get kudos for bravery. I actually think I was foolish to be in that position and I shouldn't have been there. I was a father with two small kids and it was just ridiculous that I did that. But because what then happened is the government of Bahrain went and hired a PR firm, one of these crisis intervention groups or whatever, and they called in friends and they tried to rewrite the narrative for years. They stuck with it for years, not about me, about what happened in Bahrain. And the reason I tell the story is because to my mind, it's one of the most important things that journalism can do is prevent powerful institutions and people with a lot of money from whitewashing history and changing the narrative to suit their personal interests. We witnessed what happened. I was there. I was shot at. I saw them kill civilians who were unarmed. And to this day, they are continuing to try to rewrite the narrative. No one even talks about it anymore. I mean, so it really just reinforced your core thesis about power corrupts and this idea of distrusting authority. It reminds me also of you standing up and asking Gaddafi a question. Like, these are difficult moments to raise your hand and ask a question. Remember how I said strengths are and weaknesses? <laughs> so I've never shied away from confronting authority. I get nervous. Mm. And one of the biggest challenges I have is controlling my tone of voice mm-hmm. because as I said, I can kind of shift between joking around and angry. And often how you say things is almost more important than what you say. And it's mm-hmm. something that I'm 60 years old now. I still really wrestle with that. But I remember standing in that press conference and my heart starts racing. But you got to ask, when we were at that event with Gaddafi, it was the same thing. Gaddafi was celebrating the anniversary of something called Juma Hadiyah, which was his law put in place to create a true Athenian democracy where everybody, not representative democracy, where I give my vote to a representative, but where everyone has the right to decide on things. He had an event in Subha, which was southern Libya. I believe it was where he was born or it had a family connection a while ago. And 
we sat through this whole presentation with him and prominent speakers about democracy and the Green Book and Gaddafi manages a real democracy. When it was over, it was a small group. It was a BBC. It was aired on BBC. It was a small group. And when it was over, the PR people from Cambridge, Massachusetts asked, does anyone want to ask a question? I didn't really want to raise my hand. I assumed someone else would, but nobody did. And here's Gaddafi right there. So I raised my hand and I didn't expect them to bring me up on the stage. And they brought me up on the stage and stood me next to Gaddafi. And I said something along the lines of, uh, brother leader, you know, my knees were weak. (laughs) I'm like, brother leader, because that's what they call him. How do you reconcile your claim that this is a democracy with a system that puts full power in your hands? And Gaddafi didn't turn around. And I'm not going to name names. Maybe it was one of Gaddafi's aides who said, or the PR guy who said, can you rephrase the question? And I got really nervous and I just asked it again. And then the academic, I think from Virginia, he said something like, you know, that's it. It's over. And he came over very angry to me later and said, why did you do that? Like, why would you ask that? You get more by being nice and, you know, inching them along than confronting them, which isn't true with Gaddafi. He wasn't ever going to change. But I also thought we just sat through this bullshit charade of pretending like there's democracy in Libya and asked the question. So I did. Yeah. And then I wrote about it. Yeah. I appreciate that you share the, my heart would have been in my throat and I would have felt yeah, the compulsion to do. There's a picture. Have you seen the picture? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a sequence of that, by the way. And I deleted the sequence because I look alarmed. Because then they grabbed me and pulled me off the stage. And that was the end of it. At the Silsberger Fellowship in Columbia, not even 10 years ago, I felt like the kid, you know, the punk kid from MTV and no one's going to take me serious. And I felt really vulnerable. I was at a tough spot in my career. What inspired or motivated you to literally and figuratively embrace me? Because it, in a lot of ways, Michael changed my life in a very, you know, in a really profound way. I was like, oh shit, maybe I'm okay. I admired you the minute I met you, Ben. What do you mean? Like I was, I mean, what? Look, I'm not blowing smoke at you. Do I strike you as the kind of person who blows smoke? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, I admired you. I thought you were somebody who was really working hard at it, you know, whatever it is. And I respected that. I was also, you know, you may not realize this, but I feel like I was like the dumbest guy in the room. who didn't do his homework and never learned a DVP. (laughs) It was hard for me because you guys got to know each other. So I was a part of the group, really. I will tell you that, I found the lessons interesting and somewhat instructive. The thing I really valued most was meeting the people in the group. For sure. And learning from each other. It was fascinating to me that whether it was MTV or Sky News or AP or the Dallas Morning News, we all had similar experiences. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I think I try to bring out in journalism very often, which is we tend to live lives of, you know, suffering in silence. We tend to think our experience is unique and that we're alone. And then you get together with people and you realize, huh, we're all pretty similar. And we're all, we're all in some ways wrestling with very similar kind of existential crises all the time, or really practical ones, you know, at work. I admired you. I thought that you were smart. I thought that your your effort to understand and deal with the people in particular at MTV was really interesting. Good. I don't know. I thought you were a cool guy too. And I like the Mr. Rogers thing. 
your Instagram is a artisanal sandwiches and that fish tank that's immediately to our right, the best seats on New Jersey transit. What do these images tell us about you from your vantage point? First of all, my children are a little embarrassed by my Instagram. <laughs> my older son, who's 23 and is working at a literary agency now, said to me it occurs to him that the more stressful my work day is, the mm. more wacky my Instagram is. Ah. And it's true. I think we all need a creative outlet. We all need a way to kind of broadcast to the world, I am more than my title. The Sandwiches is a really good example. Through the early part of my children's life, when I was a foreign correspondent, I traveled a lot. I missed a lot. Whenever I was home, I made them breakfast. When we moved back to the States, I couldn't make breakfast anymore. I really didn't have time. So I started making a lunch. Mm. And then one day, the European Union came out with a statement that said cured meats cause cancer. Right. And I was like, the one thing I do for my kids and I'm giving them cancer. So I said, well, what if I cook like a turkey breast and slice it or a pork roast and slice it? And then I started getting way into cooking and Cuban sandwiches, eggplant sandwiches. And then I found that I was spending a lot of my non-work time thinking up menus and buying ingredients. And it became a creative outlet for me. So I would cook at night and then assemble the sandwiches in the morning. And I would always be listening to BBC and NPR. And I realized the bookends of my life are my family and my work. So the caption became the news of the day. So you'd see, get a picture of this sandwich and a caption that was the news. And then my kids would give me like a rating during the day for the sandwich. Right. You know, amazing, not so good. Maybe don't do it again. The one that bombed was peanut butter and pickles. Like they didn't want that ever again. <laughs> I only did that once. But initially when I started doing it, people thought it was weird. They thought I was an idiot. The photography was really bad. The production values were horrible. But it reached this critical mass where even the naysayers had to acknowledge this guy's crazy. Like they're supposed <laughs> to do this, right? And my children will always remember that throughout high school, dad, no matter how busy he was, yeah. made these insane sandwiches. And their friends knew it, their coaches knew it, their teachers knew it, because very often they were pungent sandwiches. <laughs> when my youngest son graduated high school, that was it. It was over. And um, I've often thought of writing a book about fatherhood and using my sandwiches as kind of a, uh, as a guide. The fish, <laughs> the pandemic has forced all of us, I think, to spend a lot more time with ourselves and in our heads and than we had been accustomed to. My life was going 85 miles an hour and it was like pulling the emergency brake on a train. Yeah. And I found myself sitting around the house a lot. My son came out from college. He had one fish. The fish died. I put a couple of fish in his tiny little tank and they started getting bigger. So I got a little bigger tank and I would sit and watch them in between. And I was like, huh, I never knew this about fish. They actually have like personalities. And anyway, and then I got a bigger tank and then the fish got bigger and then I had to get a bigger tank and I just bought a 75 gallon tank. I haven't wow. set it up yet, but it's the first time in my life, except for the sandwiches where I have what I consider a hobby. Mm -hmm. I've learned a lot about these creatures. It takes me out of my world. It's rather meditative to watch them. Yeah. I just kind of enjoy it. And people like you think it's a little wacky. And both of those lead to one of the things I've been focused on reconciling, which is 
I was out of balance and I had to focus on what I could do to be more whole, which meant cultivating a part of myself that I wasn't being present for. And it sounds like that has some resonance. It was a way to create fuel and, and balance. For me, the pandemic was a time to slow down. Mm-hmm. My work is as important to me and as central to me as ever, but it allowed me to reconnect with my life in a way that it's kind of a gift. Honestly, I wish we didn't have the pandemic. I wish that all those people didn't die. I wish we didn't have to have experienced this and now figure out how to live with it. But I was getting up at five, getting on the train at seven, getting home at nine, 10 every day. Mm-hmm. And it was my normal. Since then, I've started, I've connected with my family in a positive way. I went into therapy, which I found extremely useful to explore and understand better who I am. I stopped drinking in September. It'll be two years since oh, wow. I've had a drink. Congrats, man. And um, I'm not somebody who's a depressive. I don't get depressed, but I always struggled with anxiety. And that's way better now, too. I appreciate you sharing that. I stopped with alcohol in January. And it wasn't the only thing, but it was a sign. It was a coping mechanism that helped me go, oh, wait, if you need that, then there's something else happening. And so removing that has helped me. For me, alcohol... I always drank. I don't think I was a particularly heavy drinker, but you know, I socially drank. And with the pandemic, a couple of things happened. I was very anxious because of the sudden change in the way I work in my life, but also mm-hmm. I was home all the time. And drinking for me became a transition right. between work and not work. You know, that was one of the things I think we all wrestled with because work seemed to go on forever. But I knew yep. I have two drinks, I'm not working. A couple of months in, I was drinking too much. And I just realized that I got to stop. What would you tell that little boy growing up in the Bronx? If you could just tell him something right now. Read more. Listen to your mother and follow your heart. Actually, I did do that. So it kind of worked out. Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Hey.